0: I've shared with you before that among the most formative times in my life, I was 20 years old, just finished my sophomore year in college, and I spent eight weeks uh, of the summer in Kenya, in East Africa. It's the first time I had left the country and been on a mission trip, and it was absolutely transformational in my life. As you hear us introducing mission trips, it's hard to think right now about next summer, but let me add a pastoral exhortation that every one of us go on a mission trip at some point. It totally changes the way we understand the world and understand Christ in us. It's one of the most formative forces that I know of in becoming like Jesus and experiencing the world through the prism of his kingdom. And so I hope that you'll do that. I spent a summer in Africa, and there was a number of transformative forces that worked in my life, After that whirlwind time, our team spending the second half divided up in different places in the country. I shadowed a pastor in rural Eastern Kenya. We came back together and spent a few days debriefing and among the many righteous takeaways was this sense that emerged, made sense all of us being 20th century American kids, the sense that I've received every time I've left the country with a group of Christians to go to someplace in the developing world or someplace less developed than we are. And that is that um, the comparative lack of prosperity landed as one of the hardest things. There's a lot of ways to understand the need. There's a lot of spiritual poverty. The place that my pastor serves is dominated culturally by animism and witchcraft. But the thing that was most forefront on our minds was their comparative lack of wealth and stuff. And the sense was that with a, a genuine heart of compassion that these people, they need Jesus and we need to get them where we are, up to speed, more like us. I spent years tacitly maintaining that perspective and not questioning it. But it's occurred to me in the last decade of my life that our societally unprecedented prosperity has brought with it unprecedented anxiety and depression, isolation, self-harm. The way that our prosperity has manifest inside the church as well as out calls into question the American assumption that if the developing world could just be more prosperous like us, they'd be better calls into question the presumption altogether that our best hope is in accumulating more. I wanna ask this morning, what will you trust in? What will you trust in? We're in a series called Jesus on Money predicated on this factual notion. This isn't my opinion. This is simply a matter of observation. Jesus in the four gospels talked about money, wealth, and possessions more than any other single subject. Jesus, the guy that said of himself, I don't even have a place to lay my head. The question is why? Jesus after our money? I posited last week as we introduced this series that maybe it's not that Jesus is preoccupied with our money. As some culture skeptics have painted him to be. But rather, Jesus is preoccupied with us, and we're preoccupied with money. And so he speaks disproportionately to our preoccupation. Last week, we asked the question, Whom will you serve? Jesus famously said, You cannot serve God and money. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to listen to the podcast or go online, denverunited.com, and you can get caught up there, a foundationally important idea from Jesus. We're continuing this week in Luke chapter 12, an encounter recorded starting in verse 13, where someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to to divide, rather, the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? That's the operative question, right? When you live in abundance, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there, there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, rather, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Often in studying this passage, teachers and scholars focus on the brother's greed, which makes sense because Jesus singles out that false motive in saying life doesn't Consist in the abundance of our possessions. Be on your guard against greed. And the brother's motivation indeed may have been greed. This wasn't a story that Jesus made up, at least not the, the, the second portion was, but not the men coming up and asking him to divide the inheritance. This was simply an encounter. He was having a meeting and they took the opportunity to harness his moral authority. It could be that the brother was greedy. Or it could be merely that he was seeking security, stability, assurance in an uncertain time, in an uncertain place. Roman occupied Palestine in the first century for a Jew was anything but stable. As the second born, presumably, the the younger brother would have asked Jesus, hey, help my traditional older brother embrace modern times? That's so religious, old-fashioned that you're the firstborn, you get it all. I need some assurance, some stability. I need to put my kids through college too. Could you ask him so that we could split it? Maybe dad's account was enough to take care of both of us. The premise that I'd like to lay out this morning is that it is deeply human to think this way. It's deeply human to desire security. And it's not wrong. We've elevated that value in a consumer economy. We've called it responsibility. We've made it into a leading virtue, in fact learning to invest for retirement when we're right out of college. I remember at the age of 22 as a young officer in the army going to not optional financial planning seminars where some contracted advisor, wealth advisor, talked to us about how dollar cost averaging works and how we start now and build a habit on investing for the future. And that was... Wise advice, and I'm glad that I did it. And Jesus doesn't say that this value for security is wrong. In fact, he validates the desire, the thought toward how we're going to be okay. Remember when he said, Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear? He said, Think of the lilies. And he doesn't say, the lilies don't care. The lilies are just as well trampled on or ugly. He says, they don't have to toil or spin because God takes care of them. Presumably the aspiration, the desire isn't the problem, but whether we take matters into our own hands or whether we trust them to God, right? Remember when he says, I won't leave you as orphans. Don't worry, I'm going away, but I'm preparing a place for you. They're need for security is deeply human. It's part of how God wired us. And it's supposed to point us back to him. The question isn't whether we do or whether we should prize our well-being, our long-term security. The question is, where does our security come from? It's what do you trust in to be okay for the future? I've shared with you before, as a kid, my parents uh, took us to church always. We went to a traditional church with good folks uh, in a wealthy town. It was a large white church with large white people, a large white steeple. My dad wore a very crisp, starchy, large white dress shirt with a red tie every Sunday of his life. We had a large white pastor who wore a large white robe. I'm just telling you factually, that's, who he was and how he dressed. I, I don't know what makes that funny. <laughs> I remember watching the pastor slip out and go around the back to greet everybody. Such a loving man. And he would stand at the rear doors and shake everybody's hand and thank them for coming and bless them. And I remember one time watching something that burned into my psyche. Somebody, you know, a, a man in the congregation, he, he had the 20 in his palm and he slipped it to the pastor in the handshake. He's like, take your wife out to something nice. Now, this was like 1986, but still, what are we talking, like riblets at Applebee's? (laughs) But it was kind, and I remember seeing that long before I ever thought I would be a pastor, but something in me went, oh, no way. Mm -mm." And then that just kind of stuck, and then when God called me to be a pastor, it was with that experience and the value that sort of coalesced around it deeply entrenched in me. And so I entered pastoral ministry thinking, I'm not, I'm going to be the one slipping the 20s. If any 20s are slipped, I'm not playing that game. There was like an, oh, hell no response. And so began a, a bit of a double internal life of trusting God teaching people as I began pastoral ministry to do the same with a preoccupation in me to do what it took to take care of my family for the future. I wasn't looking to get rich, but I thought this job, especially if I do non-denominational church, there's no retirement. There's no 401k. I gotta, I gotta make it happen for myself. And so that wheat and weed grew up in me together, if I'm honest with you. Verse 17, the rich man about whom Jesus spoke in his subsequent parable said, what shall I do? I've got all this. I have no place to store it. So he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. I'll turn my house into a rental and build a larger one. I'll buy a second one. I'll buy a third one. One in the beach one of the mountains. I'll get another car, one for my commute, one for the weekend. And he goes on, Jesus does, to caution us about a faulty basis for security. I don't know if the man was just wanting bigger barns, or if he was wanting to make sure he had enough to hold the enough. I'm going to make sure I'm secure. I'm going to secure my family and change my family's fortunes down the line. And Jesus said in probably the key verse for this passage in verse 15, be careful, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And Jesus may be speaking merely of Life as we know it, but Jesus has repeatedly said, I came that they would have what? Life, and life abundantly, like life with a capital L. And maybe he's saying, hey, the good life, the abundant life, the life that I came to redeem, restore, and connect you with, the life that God desired in creating us as his beloved children. I came that you would have that life and have it to the full. And maybe Jesus is saying the God life, the full overflowing, the abundant life. It doesn't consist in amassing possessions. For many of us who consider ourselves Christians, I think if we're gut level honest, like I just was with you about my past, We value Jesus, but when push comes to shove, we trust in our ability to create abundance. We trust in what we can amass, what we can guard, preserve, and ensure. Perhaps that's as we talked about last week, why so many and Christians at the front of the pack lost their minds during the recession when our portfolios cut in half or our mortgage-backed, security-based holdings evaporated during the Great Recession. Perhaps that's why so many of us lost our minds when the economy was threatened by the pandemic and the variety of responses to it. It's easy to be a Christian in most areas, but in that inner sanctum, behind the curtain, when push comes to shove, to be a humanist, to trust in myself and what I can accrue and secure. The challenge is that this duality, this inner reality produces all sorts of anxiety over holding on to it, all sorts of distraction, over amassing more of it, a compulsion such that enough is never enough and all sorts of relational tension to boot. Proverbs 23 teaches, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Isn't that what some of us do? Isn't that what our culture teaches us? The virtuous, responsible life looks like? Don't trust in your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches and they're gone. They will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Doesn't mean that there isn't use or value in them, but rather that they are not intrinsically secure. They're fleeting. And so if we're trying to base our security, our well-being, and by this I don't necessarily at least primarily mean our emotional security, like you're so insecure. I mean our financial, physical security, our well-being, the little inner doomsday prepper inside all of us. Maybe you're not building a bomb shelter in your basement and lining it with canned vegetables, but there's something that culture trains in all of us to store up, hold on tight and don't let go for anything. And therein lies the problem. Our ability to amass cannot meet our need for security. It's just not the right solution. It doesn't have the power to address that God instilled need. Fast forward 10 or 15 years as a young pastor, Mari and I were serving in a wonderful church in Colorado Springs, and that notion for security had sort of gotten pushed down to places that we didn't talk about at parties. But it was living, and it was swimming around in the inky depths, and it was pulling too many of my strings. And I led us to buy three acres of land in a developing community with gates on it where 6,000 square foot houses with horse properties were going up. And we scraped and finagled. And I sold rental property and made, by the skin of our teeth, the ability to build a house in that neighborhood, thinking, I'm endowing our family for the future. This is where we'll raise our kids and grandkids, and this will be our financial security. At the end of the day, God didn't reject me, just made things harder than they needed to be. Of course, the reign of those difficult years in 2008 and 9 fell on the just and the unjust. It was a hard time for everybody, but it became needlessly hard for my family because of that unrighteous force operating against the discipleship work of Jesus in my heart. And so we had to carry that house like an albatross, turned it into a very cumbersome rental. The biggest stress for me in planting a church in Denver was driving back to Colorado Springs periodically to take care of that house and that property. There were many times that I thought just to give the keys back to the bank and short sell like the rest of them. God redeemed it, ended up being a part of his story of blessing and provision. But a lot of peace I forfeited. A lot of relational tension I introduced in my own home didn't learn that lesson the hard way. But man, how I wished I had heard this talk and learned it the easy way. I guess I've sort of made a living out of learning things the medium way. Anyone else like that? So then what do we trust in? Jesus points us a different direction. And as usual, he does it a little cryptically. In verse 21, he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I wish Jesus would use that as a topic sentence and go on and give us another two or three paragraphs on just what being rich toward God means. But he lives the explanation. He weaves it into the rest of his teaching and his example. What did he mean to be rich toward God. Well, in Luke chapter 20, some people tried to trap him, as they often did in the last year of his ministry in particular, by saying, hey, we're here under the Roman Empire, but we're the covenant people of God. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Yes or no? And Jesus, of course, asks for the coin. He says, whose picture and inscription are on it? And they said Caesar's. And he said, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And they went away amazed at his answer, silencing his critics as he did. What exactly is God's? What's he referring to here? Give to God what is God's. I mean, isn't it all God's? In Deuteronomy chapter 14, I think we find what Jesus was referring to. And I think he expected, and rightly so, that his hearers familiar with the Torah as they were to understand his reference. It might be worth us diving into it to get up to speed. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, God said through Moses, establishing the life of his covenant community, the people of Israel, bring this tithe to the designated place of worship, the place The Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored. Doing this will teach you always to fear the Lord your God. He talked about the tithe, which is in the Hebrew, the word 10, 10th, a 10%. Tithe is just a transliteration of that Hebrew word. It's not translated, it's just taking that word and Englishifying it, right? He said... I want you from the very beginning, while you're wandering around in the desert, people of Israel, and have nothing, to establish for yourselves this practice. Take the first 10% of what you produce, your fields, your herds, your wealth, and bring it to the place God establishes collectively for his people to worship, because this, doing this will teach you always to fear the Lord your God. I can imagine when the people heard this, there was a practical one among them, like the accountant sorts that are very literal and and very on top of things, who would say, isn't it all God's though? Why go through the exercise of him giving it to us and asking us to give back a percent? Why not just give us 90% of what he gave us? God instituted the tithe For us to demonstrate our trust in Him. And that's why this practice. God's not short of cash. The church is not just trying to get at your money. Perhaps you have been a part of a church tradition where it seemed as though that were so. I'm sure sorry for that. On behalf of those who lead church, I'm sorry that... This idea, which is about us, you and your relationship with God, was distorted or perverted and misrepresented for you. Make no mistake about it, though, what God is after is your heart. He wants you to trust Him, He wants you to trust in Him in the deepest places for your provision. And your well-being and your future he said back at the beginning doing this practice will teach you always to fear the lord your god always to remember that our employer is not our provider i am not secure for the future because of the strength of my hands or my work ethic. God is my provider and he delights in providing for me that we would always know and fear and remember. And the fear of God that this Old Testament reference and many others that employ that phrase is referring to is not us cowering, afraid that God's going to strike us, but a reverence, an honor, a firstness, a recognition. since we began and and before that as a family, we've always tithed. Even while I was wrestling with and working through my own understanding of where security comes from. And since day one, when we were meeting in our basement and Mari and I were dreaming about a church in Denver, as economists were cautioning about the onset of a global economic recession. In case you're ever thinking about planting a church, let me suggest not doing it at the onset of a global economic recession all the same. But that's where we found ourselves. And we've always tithed as a church, a tithe of the tithe of the people. In times of abundance, such as we experienced for the first 10 years, and in times of leanness, such as we've experienced in the last three years, And God has always generously provided for our family and for this church family. And when churches across America closed their doors by the hundreds and by the thousands during the pandemic, when we were forced to close for the better part of a year and had to begin again from scratch with most of the work of the last 10 years washed away in the tide, God always faithfully provided Let me tell you about tithing. Tithing, first and foremost, is not generosity. Make no mistake here. Generosity is important. It's what we talked about last week, right? Last week, we talked about how generosity kills greed and cultivates discipleship in our lives. But tithing is not generosity. Tithing is obedience, Tithing isn't a a fruit of giving to others. Tithing is, will I or will I not submit? In Malachi chapter three, a familiar verse if you've grown up in church, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me and you ask, how are we robbing you in tithes and offerings? You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. God makes clear that the first 10% of that which he gives us is his, not ours. Why not just give us 90%? Because he wants us to choose. Why not, for that matter, zoom out and just make us programmed robots who have no choice but to do what God wants us to do? Puppets on a string. Because it brings God glory to give us choice. Made in His image, that's one of the key resemblances. Our volition, our will. And for us to choose Him. Nowhere is that choice more painful and sacrificial and meaningful than in choosing to give back of that from which he abundantly gave us what he said is his. Tithing is obedience. It demonstrates I'm submitted. Bring the whole tithe, he said, to the storehouse. The storehouse, as Deuteronomy referenced, is that place where God is worshiped collectively. There are many good storehouses. In the modern New Testament expression, I believe that most reliably to be a local church, not necessarily this local church, but pick a storehouse and bring the whole tithe to it. It's not ours to divvy up. I'm gonna give 2% of my tithe here and 2% there like we learned to do with our investment portfolio. He says, bring the whole tithe to the storehouse. Well, that seems oddly self-serving for you, Rob. Hey, I didn't write the book. And if one is looking to be self-serving, let me suggest gently, don't be a pastor. (laughs) There's a lot of better ways to get rich. But that's what God said. And that is the way, by the way, that we operate. We don't do a, a telethon where we interrupt the programming for six annoying weeks and bring on guests and talk forever about how we need your money. We don't do golf things. We like golf if you like to play golf, but we're not, we're not doing, we don't have angel investors out there. It's us. This is the family of God. It is purely the tithes of God's people. Jesus said, remember in this passage that we're looking at today in Luke 12, take care and be on your guard. In the traditional translations, it says, against all covetousness. What is covetousness? Coveting is wanting what belongs to someone else. He's saying, be on your guard about wanting what belongs to someone else. So tithing is obedience. Second, tithing is integrity. It's literally putting our money where our mouth is. In Luke 11, Jesus said to them, you Pharisees clean the outside of the dish and inside you're full of wickedness and greed. He's basically saying you're hypocrites, right? Woe to you because you tithe even down to the the finest herbs. You give a 10th of everything from your big crops to like each little bit of mint and basil that you grow in your window gardens. But you neglect justice and the love of God. He says, you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. What's he talking about? integrity. He's saying, you all practice the letter of the law, and you're leaving the spirit undone. The same principle operates in reverse. If we're practicing the principle of the law, we we purport to be about justice and love. Don't leave the former undone. Tithing is integrity. It's putting our money where our mouth is. It's saying, I believe in God, and I surrender to him, And then it's demonstrating that surrender at a place that is costly, at a place that may touch on our deepest insecurity. And tithing is security. It's authentic. God-ordered security. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, he says, that there may be food in my house and test me in this. See if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it, says the Lord Almighty. This has been distorted so often. Hey, just tithe, give to the church, and all your dreams will come true, true, true. And you'll get rich, rich, rich. I don't know if you're gonna get rich, probably not. But I know this, God will be your security. God will provide for you. You are His children. He cares about you much more than we parents care about our children. God won't leave you begging bread. And with that security of income comes the incomparable security of peace in my soul, knowing that God is my provider and that He is recession proof allows me to go to sleep at night, regardless of where the market is. Whether the church is booming like it was in 2019 or is being scraped up off the floor like it was in 2021, I would prefer it to be booming, all things considered, but my soul can rest peacefully because this corporation... You all, you're not my provider. God is my provider. And so it is with you. There is unprecedented, unmatched security in trusting God. Honor the Lord with your wealth, Proverbs 3 famously teaches, with the first fruits of all your crops. And then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. This is a wisdom principle. It's not guaranteeing overflow. It's not promising wealth. It's simply saying, if you trust God and honor him with your wealth, he will provide for everything you need, for life and enjoyment. He is so good. He is so trustworthy. And he's shown it to us over and over again, tithing is security. And lastly, and this may be my sneaky favorite. This is just a little... um, it's pastoral add on. Tithing is peace. It's peace. It's what I was just alluding to about being able to go to sleep at night. One of the m- more common conversations you have over 20 years of pastoral ministry is I, I believe in the idea conceptually, but I, if I'm just honest, I can't live off of 90%. And I get that right now, that could be hard tomorrow. But here's the thing listen to ourselves. Say, play back the tape and listen to yourself. If we can't live off of 90% of what we're used to earning, what we're saying is I need to live off of 100%. I need to live on the margin, but guess what? Tires cost 10% and they wear out and they roll over nails and furnaces go out and that costs 10%. Life ends up straining us horribly when we live on the margin, right? And there's no judgment there. Some of us, it's just, I mean, you're looking at me like, have you seen rent in Denver lately? I get it. I've seen mortgage in Denver. But if we choose to live hand to mouth, spending everything that we bring in only to hope we can bring in more next year so we can spend a little more, we're introducing a certainty of stress in our lives. And tithing teaches us to step back from the margin. I'm not saying that your tithe is your rainy day fund, but when you go from living on 100% to living on 90%, it's incrementally much easier, don't you know, to go from living on 90% to living on 80%. We now live on 70%. We tithe before we do anything else, and then we put away money for our future, non-anxiously, and then we save 10% and then we live off of the rest. And you're like, well, yeah, but you're in your 40s, you're earning a good income. Yeah, but again, let me offer you a bit of prudential wisdom. If you're looking to earn a high income, probably don't do pastoral ministry. It's not the, it's not the best get rich. So I'm not asking for your pity. God's given us everything we need and more. What I'm saying is the journey has been to learn to live off of the margin and be at peace and be able to be generous and be able to go skiing. To be able to experience the joy of the Lord in practical and not just ethereal ways. Tithing is peace. So what do we do on day one? How do we put this into practice? Well, the scripture calls it the first fruits, bring the first and best. This was a a term that had to do with their agrarian culture. I think the idea here is schedule. Schedule. Schedule first what matters most. It's what we do consciously or tacitly with our schedules. It's the exact same thing we do with our budgets. And so Mari and I, we give online, we set up an auto payment so that we don't have to think about or decide every month, do I want to do this again? Some people prefer to write a check because they want to make that conscious decision. However you do that is fine. We schedule first what matters most. And then let everything else flow from that. And then secondly, God says, test me in this. That's a peculiar instruction given that God explicitly said, and Jesus quoted, thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. Except it would seem when he explicitly directs us the opposite. So we're not supposed to test him except where we're supposed to test him. And he says in this, test me. Test me. See if I won't open the floodgates of blessing and take care of your every need and fill you with more peace and authentic security than you've ever known. Test me in this. And so what I've received from the Lord, I pass on to you. Test him. Try it. I think we're wise not to try something for a couple of days or a month and say, see, it didn't work. Everything takes a little time. Fitness takes time things that are holistic and go to the heart and fabric of our existence, take time, but set apart three or six months and test God. Say, God, I'm gonna sacrificially begin to be a tither. I'm gonna bring the whole tithe to the storehouse that there may be food in your house and trust you to fill my house up and see what he does. It's kind of weird to be telling you to do something that feels like in every other realm, you might get struck by lightning, except he invited us to this. And I think it's a concession and it's an invitation because he knows, he made us to thirst for security. That desire to keep a roof over your family's head, that's righteous. That desire not to be a burden on your kids or society when you're elderly, that's righteous. The question is, how are we going to express that desire? God made provision for it. And everything flows from there. Seek first, Jesus said, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added. They'll all stack up in right order. Make sense? Yes, no, maybe so. What I heard in that involuntary moment of silence is you want another 30 minutes on tithing? I am so ready to preach that message. All right, stand up, let's get out of here. All right, anybody uh, having like the church money talk angst that we can come pray for you or give you like a shoulder rub or something? Are you all right? All right. Let's just open our hands toward heaven. Father, in the name of Jesus, we welcome everything that is you. We reject everything that is not. Holy Spirit, would you come and sort the two out? And if anything I spoke, particularly today and particularly on this tender and abused subject, if any of it is contrary to your heart or your word, I pray that it would just fall to the ground right now. And if any of it be from you, my words are nothing, your word is eternal. Would you cause it to penetrate our hearts and reorder our lives? If we abide in you and your words abide in us, we will bear much fruit and we confess that we believe And Jesus, we want to be like you. It's in your wonderful name we pray. I bless my friends today. Amen.